Hey, it's good to have everybody here, especially with all the crud going around. Appreciate you guys making it out, and I, I think I'm glad you're here. Uh, so, uh, listen, if uh, you were here last month when I taught on uh, the false prophets and false converts, you, you know, maybe you really don't want to hear me say much more about that. I'm sorry, I have to, because Jesus does. And in studying and better understanding this portion of Scripture in the Sermon on the Mount, I've come to wonder whether some listening to what Jesus says might question their own salvation. You know, none of us can judge somebody else's salvation. Only God knows for sure. We can apply the test that we talked about last month that we'll mention again this month. And surely the portion of the sermon that we're in right now would qualify as what we would call a hard saying, okay? Um, hard to hear, hard to hear. But I've thought about this and I've come to the conclusion that if the words of Jesus causes somebody to question whether they're really saved, much better that than to live out life under a lie or a half-truth and then die. Uh, because the deal is, Jesus loves us so much that he warns us clearly and repeatedly about this. I also want to say before I really get into this that, you know, uh, I am human and uh, fallible, certainly. Anybody who thinks that I have communicated in the past or today in the future with the wrong spirit or I've misinterpreted the words of Jesus, please come and talk to me. Uh, I don't want anybody to think here I'm making a judgment on anybody's salvation or their particular position spiritually, but rather it's my goal to explain as best I can what Jesus is saying here. And this is Really, really important. Uh, I think, no, I know we're going to go long today because there's so much there. I've cut as much as I can. But, and, and frankly, we're going to revisit this same passage maybe for a couple more messages in the future. It's so important. When you consider the gravity and the consequences of what Jesus has said throughout the Sermon on the Mount, the next words of Jesus are probably the most shocking that anyone has ever uttered. Hmm. Guys, we have the wrong uh, series up here. <laughs> Is Josh back there? Let me see something. Just a second. Can I go backwards? Yeah, um, yeah. this is not it, and I didn't notice that before, so um, if Josh can bring it up, then we'll, be, we'll get back to it, okay? <laughs> that is a while back, so I'll just go on, and you have it on your handout anyway, I got that right, <laughs> all right? Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, 
Did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. The King James uses the workers of iniquity. The fact that this statement is made by the Son of God makes it even more terrifying. Think, how many of you have ever heard a message on this passage? Raise your hand. A few. Okay. But if we believe that this is the Word of God, we cannot avoid the hard saying that is in front of us. Um, Last month we talked about how Jesus warned that Satan has no more effective tool than to use false prophets to teach an attractive and an easy gospel to dissuade seekers away from the straight gate and the narrow road. And in this passage today, we have essentially two claims made by two claimants. The problem is that one claim leads to the most subtle and dangerous spirit in life one can imagine. One more dangerous than the progressive anti-Christian spirit of our age. One that's not found so much out there, but rather within the church at large. The claim is so attractive because it's so friendly, it's non-confrontive, it feels so good. In short, it is a sort of call to spiritual peace. But one might call it a false peace with God. That is, the delusion that because a prayer has been uttered in response, now listen to this, in response to an expression of the love of God, that one is good to go, has his ticket to heaven punched. This false peace is so subtle and deceptive that when we take an honest look at it, we know the origin. You need to do something. Okay. Okay. (laughs) I think Josh just told me I sent him the wrong one. Oh, yeah, yeah, exactly, Mike. (laughs) I worked hard on that. (laughs) Okay. All right. The, uh, we take an honest look at it. Uh, These people are Satan's agents, false prophets and others, knowingly or not. Of course, what we all want is true peace, the rock-solid gravity the rock-solid assurance that we have eternal life. The problem, though, is that this false peace can enter in and supplant, take the place of, crowd out, true peace. Now, if you've been here, you remember that the golden rule is kind of the pinnacle. It's the top of the mountain of the Sermon on the Mount. But Jesus goes from there into the application of all his teachings with warnings about decisions we all have to make. And when you truly consider the gravity of that teaching, I can think of no decision that is more consequential. First of all, of when is Jesus speaking? He simply uses the phrase, on that day. I think what you'll see is, what he's referring to here, is the day of judgment of all, which we found in Matthew 28. 
As biblical Christians, those who believe the Bible actually means what it says, we must consider this passage as people who are keenly aware that we will all have to stand before God in a final judgment one day. He will separate the sheep from the goats. And you definitely want to be a sheep, not a goat, and certainly not a wolf in sheep's clothing. As to context here, Jesus exhorts us to enter in at the straight or the difficult gate, which leads to the narrow and, frankly, unpopular path. He loves us so much that he warns us about those who would stand just outside the gate and try to divert us away from this, the straight gate. These are false prophets, and they look so good. They're just like one of the sheep, gentle and loving in their approach. They're so attractive in their appearance and in their message, one that's so much easier, and it attracts the big crowds. But Jesus reveals to us that these false prophets are not gentle sheep, but ravenous wolves. He then gives us tests. We will know them by their fruits. No teacher is perfect, but we're to ask, is the teacher characterized by the qualities that we find in the Beatitudes? In the, does he exhibit the fruits of the Spirit? Is he humble? And by that, we will be able to tell over time whether he's a sheep or a wolf in sheep's clothing. The teaching method used by Jesus is consistent. He starts with blunt assertions like, judge not, uh, enter at the straight gate, Beware of false prophets. And then he illustrates and amplifies each assertion. Uh, now, in verse 21, he starts with a general assertion. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Now, we need to first clear up a misinterpretation here. Because some have taken verse 21 by itself to stand for the proposition that faith and works are opposites. If you look at 21, let's consider the argument that these folks who misinterpret the, the, uh, the verse will use. They say, verse 21 says that it is not the person who merely says, Lord, Lord, rather it's the person who does. And when we do, we work, right? That's the logic. Therefore, according to this line of reasoning, it is works that get us into the kingdom of heaven. Now, you all know, because you've been around and you've heard about the Reformation, that that's not true. But if you just read a little farther, you can see the fallacy of that. All Scripture's got to be taken in context. And the general context here is it starts with beware of false prophets. The specific context is verses 21 through 23 on your sheet, which must be taken as a package to avoid the heresy. There's a definite doing here, okay, involved that we're going to get back to in just a little bit. But when you consider the following verses, you will see that Jesus says the same thing about works that he says about words. In the following verses, he says that people will be doing, they'll be prophesying, casting out demons, doing many mighty works in the name of Jesus, and they are not saved. They're workers instead of iniquity. So there's no claim here that salvation is by works. Instead, the real message here is about deception. In the passage starting in verse 15, it was all about the deception of the false prophets. And the deception of the false teacher may very well lead us to our passage here today. However, our passage today 
is about self-deception. While the false prophet may be the genesis, the beginning of our deception, we each bear responsibility for continuing to be deceived. Instead, our goal is, as the author of Hebrews 12 is, to strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So, if our concept of justification by faith does not include genuine righteousness, we are genuinely deceived. Now, sometimes biblical principles may seem contradictory, like judge not and beware of false prophets. You see, you can't beware without judging. Or how about faith and works, justice and mercy? But instead of looking at these as contradictory, we should see them all as balancing truths. And this is the part about God's Word that we need to understand. It's coherent, it's consistent, it's cohesive, and it fits and holds together when taken as a whole. So, so it is here, as we're so used to the simple gospel as uh, believe and you'll be saved. Just pray a prayer to invite Jesus in your heart. We all love simplicity. But simplicity is not an excuse for lack of clarity, a.k.a. deception. Simplicity can lead to self-deception unless we balance the simple gospel with the clear teaching of Jesus. Now, of course, it is difficult to define genuine righteousness. We've suggested the test of consistent, demonstrated character and humility Jesus gives us another one here. He says, it's the one who does the will of the Father who will enter heaven. In no way does the doing earn salvation, but it is an evidence of one who is on the narrow road. So we're gonna, we need to also consider the negative examples that Jesus gives of things that people rely upon for salvation, yet that don't by themselves save a person. And it's the reliances of these false evidences of salvation that amount to self-deception. Now, I need to give you a warning here. If you're like me, you haven't thought about this before, you're going to be a little surprised what a person can do or believe and still miss the straight gate and the narrow path to salvation. Amazing how far one can get and still not be saved according to Jesus. So, the first one is, the first false evidence of salvation is orthodoxy or correct belief. You guys are pretty poker-faced. Because if you didn't read your study sheet, you did not see that one coming, did you? The uh, orthodoxy is a word of Greek origin. And it means correct opinion. For believers, it's conforming to the Christian faith by the clear teaching of God's Word. And the creeds of the early church are very helpful in identifying orthodoxy. Jesus simply says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. These people are saying and believing the right things. And to be clear, Jesus is not criticizing them for that at all. Rather, he says that not all those who say and believe the right things will be saved. Of course, it is also true that one who does not say and believe biblical principles cannot be saved. In fact, 
orthodoxy is essential. It's necessary for salvation. Philippians 2 gives us the orthodoxy or essentials as to Jesus. He came as God, humbled himself and became a human servant and obeyed his Father by going to the cross for us. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, so that the name, at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Paul tells us that the person who calls Jesus his Lord must do so in the Holy Spirit. So a true believer will definitely say, Lord, Lord, and that believer will genuinely mean that when she does. After all, the word does say, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. But this is genuine belief. However, again, we're faced with the cold, hard fact that not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will be saved. James brings this out in another startling statement. He says, the devils also believe and tremble in chapter 2 of his book. In other words, the devils know that God exists and they know that Jesus is God, but they're still devils. Uh, There have been cases of people who have read and understood and believed the word, perhaps even argued for it against heresy, and yet the character of their lives, their nature, argues against the very orthodoxy in which they say they believe. Now, while this is startling, uh, it's understandable when you consider the reasons and arguments for the Christian faith that we usually sum up in, in the term apologetics. 1 Peter 3 tells us that we should have no fear of those who would persecute us, but always be prepared to make a defense, an apologia, to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. Yet we do that with gentleness and respect. And the arguments are many and convincing. The biblical worldview matches reality better than any other. It is consistent with objective science, and it offers a more logical answer to that which cannot be objectively proven, like origins of the universe and life. The teaching of Jesus is revered by people of many faiths because it makes sense, and it does lead to peace. This is a part of common grace. God makes the sun to shine on the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. The historical evidence for the person and the crucifixion of Jesus is beyond dispute of, to, to all scholars. A person may even come to the conclusion that Jesus was, in fact, the Son of God. The fact is that Christian apologetics are very, very convincing. However, if the person who hears the arguments comes to believe those things by mental assent only but is not born again, It does not result in salvation. So, here's the danger. Somebody hears, and then he says, and believes that Jesus is the Son of God, and that following his teachings will bring peace, a better life, better relationships, more happiness. All true. Perhaps the person even feels better, especially because he's told by churchgoers that he is saved. And perhaps he really does experience some new peace in his life. Is it a true or a false peace? Well, the issue here is on what does that person depend for salvation? If the person trusts in his beliefs, is he saved? Jesus here says, no. Rather, it is trusting in the work of Christ on the cross to pay the price that he could never pay that leads to salvation, that leads to true 
peace. Now, you all know people, all know families, where young people who were brought up in those families, good, godly, great families, and maybe went to great Bible-teaching churches, who once they left, they left the faith behind and started to live for themselves. They knew what to do and to say while they were at home, and then it just disappeared. Everybody thought they were believers. That's why our apologetics cannot end with arguments, but it must be a road to, to the gospel called discipleship. Christy and I lead a, a group of high school students in apologetics, and of course, one of our goals is to give them an answer for the hope that lies within. However, these students are from various churches and families, and we have no idea where they're really at spiritually, except for a few of them. Uh, And so, more than anything, we want to help anchor them in their own faith to understand the necessity of the cross so they can be better prepared for the coming challenges when they leave their homes. Apologetic or belief on its own does not save. Rather, it is a way to clear away the brush of common misunderstandings that obstructs the view of Christ on the cross. Therefore, we've named our course Getting to the Gospel. So to kind of summarize this first false evidence up, just so you'll understand, a more concise way to do this is that belief, correct belief or orthodoxy, is a necessary but not a sufficient evidence of salvation. Okay? It's necessary, but by itself it's not enough. The next false evidence of salvation that we want to address is zeal. Have you ever met a person who you would describe as on fire for the Lord? Okay? Uh, you know, last month we, we mentioned how some people are just naturally nice. Okay? But there are some people who are just naturally enthusiastic. They're more outspoken. They're overtly evangelistic all the time. I was thinking to myself about who, who in my life has been that way, and I thought of my stepfather, a guy named Walt Hilmer. Okay? And Walt was a character. You know, whenever he would come over, before he left, he would put his hand on some little kid's head and he would pray. And they'd be, they'd be uncomfortable and all that, you know. And, and he was always doing something. He helped start the rescue mission. Uh, and he had a, a, a saying. I saw him do this at meetings where he would start the meetings off. And he would go, I'm a sinner, saved by Jesus. Boy, am I enthusiastic. Okay. I called his son and asked him, do you remember that? He goes, oh yeah, he did that all the time. And because I knew Walt, and I knew that his enthusiasm was genuine, I don't have any doubt about where he is today and that he's waiting for us. But there, there's, uh, there's also uh, a person may know the truth and be zealous, even enthusiastic about it, yet not be born again. Now, you may say that you Bible study people out there. You may say, Kent, where did you possibly get that from this text? All right? Okay, let me let you in on a little secret. It applies at least to me as a teacher. I don't have too many original thoughts. All right? And a people, people a lot smarter than me have come to this conclusion based upon two words. Think for yourself about the other passages where the words are repeated Lord, Lord. Okay? Now, I looked, and I could come up with only two. The first is in Luke 6, where we've got a mini-sermon on the mount. 
And between the teaching about the two trees and the two houses, Jesus says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? The other one is in Matthew 25, just before the teaching on the final judgment and separating the sheep from the goats, where Jesus is telling the parable of the ten virgins. And they're waiting for the bridegroom, and five of them are ready when he comes to signify the, coming, the second coming of Christ. But five are unprepared. And so they wake up, and the others are gone, and they rush off to the wedding feast, and they knock, and they say, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. The point here is that it's not that it's wrong to say, Lord, Lord, but that this repetition of Lord, Lord is found in the Bible only where there's a reason for it, what we call in the law, an excited utterance, a show of zeal. Uh, this is more than mental assent. This is, there's feeling, emotion, a sense of urgency and excitement. These people are anxious and full of fervor. They're trying to convince the Lord of their genuine status, but he ain't having it. Again, some folks have a nature that's more emotional and sensitive. And you and I should not look askance at such people. Instead, we apply the test that we've talked about. Okay? I've, uh, there's a brother to whom I related by marriage who will cry at the mention about, of about anything that touches his heart. It's hard for me to remember a conversation I've had with him without him shedding tears of compassion or thankfulness. And I apply the test of the Beatitudes, the fruits of the Spirit, and humility, and I easily come to the conclusion that his frequent emotional responses are a result of his humility at, as how God has forgiven him, remolded, and blessed his life. Perhaps you know people who, who could not have a conversation or prayer without becoming emotional. And that person may, may genuinely be moaning from the heart but not necessarily. You apply the tests. You look for evidences of a genuine spirit. And, and looking at myself and, and other teachers, we need to ask ourselves these same questions. Is the fervor of my teaching the result of the love of the truth and the working of the Spirit, or is it just out of pride in my preparation and delivery? Obviously not mine today. <laughs> the flesh. That's possible. And if you've watched much TV or YouTube, the preachers, you'll, you may see there, some are quite zealous, even dramatic. You know, and some seem kind of phony, but not all. You know, one that I think is an extremely emotional teacher is uh, Francis Chan. Okay? Extremely emotional. But he, he seems to ring true. I don't know him personally, but, you know, he does. Others, not so much. Therefore, to sum up here, we should be aware that just because a person believes the right things and is enthusiastic should not lead us to conclude that they are born again and walking the narrow road. It goes deeper than that. The last false evidence we're going to discuss today is works. Okay? Now, let's think this through. This passage says it's ridiculous to argue salvation by works, something we all have a pretty good grasp on. However, we have sometimes said that good works... While they do not save, they follow from genuine salvation. I just said a little while ago that works can be evidence of salvation. Now Jesus tells us that some works do not necessarily provide a sure sign of salvation. 
What kind of works does he mention? The first is prophecy. Now, prophecy has generally been considered to be words spoken by and through the power of the Holy Spirit. And we know of the Old Testament prophets, and we know that Paul talks about prophecy in the New Testament times. Some would argue that that gift is no longer applicable today because it was needed back then because they didn't have the word. They didn't have the New Testament. Others say that there's some form of prophecy is still valid today. But whatever your view, even if it is a valid gift today, the fact that someone claims to have and practice it does not mean that that person is a true prophet. In fact, if he's not a true prophet, there's only one alternative, and it's not good. But it's worse than that. Our passage here says that he said, many will come to me on that day and claim to prophesy in my name. And his response, I never knew you, you worker of iniquity. That's a pretty shocking statement. You know, Jesus is saying here it's possible a person can believe rightly, can be enthusiastic, can have an orthodoxy, and prophesy in his name, and yet still not enter the kingdom. If I were to say that to you, you'd think I was narrow-minded and judgmental. But this is Jesus saying this. So if this is so, we ought to see examples in Scripture. Well, in the Old Testament, we see the prophet Balaam, who spoke right words and, in fact, talked to God. But yet, because he was a prophet for hire, he was left out of the kingdom. Uh, King Saul had the spirit of prophecy, yet he was left out of the kingdom. You consider 1 Corinthians 13, where Paul says, If I speak in the tongues of angels, of men and angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing. So a man may speak like an angel and even prophesy, yet be outside the kingdom. Paul says in Philippians 1, Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, and proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition. He's simply recognizing here that they were preaching correctly, but with the wrong motives, the wrong spirit. Therefore, on the day of judgment, you and I may be surprised to find that some who taught eloquently and perhaps even prophesied are not there in the kingdom because they did it for the wrong motive, the wrong spirit. Another work that Jesus mentioned is casting out demons. And Jesus was accused of this, of using satanic powers in Matthew 12 and Luke 11. And his response to the Jews was, If I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? So they're obviously Jewish exorcists. Uh, in Acts 19, we see the seven sons of Sceva, who was a Jewish high priest. Uh, and they heard the power that Paul had, and so they tried to copy it and spoke to the evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. And this didn't work out so well for the boys, if you read that story. The main point here is that one can cast out demons in the name of Jesus and not be part of the kingdom. Finally, Jesus mentions that these people will plead that they did many mighty works in his name. And he doesn't deny that, in fact, that they did those works. We don't know what those works were, but they're obviously extraordinary. We see this, an example of this, when Moses performed miracles before Pharaoh, some of the, magic, the magicians of Pharaoh were able to copy some of those same miracles. Jesus himself says in Matthew 24, false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. And Paul describes how Jesus will destroy the wicked 
whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders in 2 Thessalonians 2. The bottom line here is that throughout the Bible as well as today, a person may even do works that defy the laws of nature, yet they may count for nothing, and that person may not be a part of God's kingdom, not saved. Now, we often hear references to the paranormal, and I'm not going to get into that, and some of you may think that's all wacko stuff. Uh, I'll just say that, or ask, is it possible that God gives believers and sometimes unbelievers special powers for his purposes? I think it is. I'm going to move on here. Paul expresses what I would call a divine jealousy for the church which he describes as a pure virgin to Christ in 2 Corinthians 11. And then he expresses concern that just as the serpent deceived Eve, so would those who come and proclaim another Christ than his. Paul then explains why he taught them without asking any compensation for his efforts. And what I am doing, I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission they work on the same terms as we do. For such men are false prophets, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan describes himself as an angel of light. So it is of no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds." Satan's goal is always to bring down, to defile the bride of Christ, the church. And if he can make people who sit in churches believe that they're saved when they're not, that pretty much does it. These phony servants of righteousness can have false beliefs or even right beliefs taken in the wrong way. They can be enthusiastic and zealous. They can, be, they can prophesy, cast out demons, do miraculous works, all in the name of Jesus, and not be born again. Some of you may remember a scandal from the 70s called Watergate. Okay? And uh, this ended in the resignation of President Richard Nixon. Nixon's inner circle, which included an unsaved guy named Chuck Colson, had convinced themselves that their cause was more important than their ethics. Now, in the same way, certain church leaders may convince themselves that their successes, their programs, their numbers, their collections are more important than the hard work of discipleship. So those results become the goal. And they say, God must be blessing our church. Look at all the people! Why run them off with talk about self-examination or repentance or other disciplines of that narrow road? The end of all that for the church is what some call cheap grace. That is, forgiveness without repentance, discipleship without obedience, blessing without persecution, joy without righteousness. Kind of relating back to our Sunday school, attending church without engaging and serving as part of the body. Instead, just bigger and more. 
I want to be careful here because I grew up in a mainline denomination and I do not remember ever hearing the gospel until I went off to college, believe it or not. But my upbringing, and I think particularly my mother, prepared my heart and made it fertile for the gospel. So I'm not saying it's worthless to attend church only. I'm simply saying, as we tried to talk about in Sunday school, that if you're going to be a part of a church, as Jesus and the whole Bible proclaims, you need to be engaged in it. You need to be a part of it and not simply an attender. It makes you, to attend church, makes, no more makes you a Christian than being, as they say, makes you a car if you're sitting in your garage. Jesus here makes it abundantly clear here that many will be deceived into staying on Broadway, including many attending church. Okay? You know, at Lion Lamb, we don't try to run people off, believe it or not. We don't. Now, people may leave because it's too crowded in our small building, or maybe they hear something they're not comfortable with, or maybe it's the music or a dozen other things. But our responsibility as shepherds is to the best that we can to make sure that you who are here get it. That you understand what it means to be a follower of Christ in spirit and in truth. Why do we take that hard stand? Because Jesus warns us that the gate is narrow, the way is hard, that leads to life. And those who find it are few. And we want you to be among the few. Okay, so what? What does this mean to us? How do we apply this? For each of us individually, Jesus summed it up in... Uh, when he sent out 72 disciples with special powers in Luke 10. And, and there it says that the 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And Jesus said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Certainly, God uses extraordinary things for his purposes in both disciples and unbelievers. Yet, the counsel of Jesus is that we should not look and trust into those things, rather we look to the heart we don't rejoice in what we know or believe, even in our good works. Rather, we rejoice in the work of Christ on the cross that gives us the rock-solid assurance that you are saved. For the bride of Christ, in order to avoid the false claims out there and keep the church pure and on the narrow road, we must use those tests with teachers and other believers does their nature, what comes from their tree, does it mirror the Beatitudes and the fruits of the Spirit? Do they do the will of the Father with humility? And finally, and probably most importantly, for the lost on an individual level, if we're witnessing to the unsaved, we should never give them false peace that a simple prayer, belief, or action alone will save them. Instead, we need to always make sure that they understand the problem of their sin 
the weight, the guilt of their sin as opposed to God's perfect justice. And then our desperate need for the work of Christ on the cross. And then and only then, the good news that God's perfect love for us that flows from confession and repentance to forgiveness is available. And all that, and this is something that's often missed, all that must be followed up with genuine discipleship, growing, which we all should be doing in a Bible-believing church. And in conclusion, and I mean that, we should all be reading and studying and memorizing and meditating on the Word of God so that when one comes along, we can spot a counterfeit easily. Father in heaven, we just give you all praise. Lord, this is a hard saying. And I just pray, Lord, that if it has raised any concerns in anybody's heart, that they would do something about it today. Because we have no claim on tomorrow. I pray, Lord, that you would cause those who question their own salvation to make sure their faith, to talk to somebody, and to truly be born again. Father, I pray that you would work in all of our hearts and help us to follow the narrow road. Lord, help us see all the manifestations of this, all the applications of this, and apply it in our lives. Thank you, Father, that you love us enough to warn us, to give us your hard truth, so that we may know your loving arms in eternity. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.